Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm beginning to think that some of our fellow saloners haven't gotten the word that there is a worldwide economic crisis going on right now. Because this past week, we've we've received more donations than ever before. Now, I'm not complaining, mind you, and uh, just so that our donors know uh, what's being done with their money, I guess I should mention that uh, I set a little aside out of uh, each donation to use what I grandly call the out-of-studio recordings. But that's just a uh, fancy way to say that uh, in addition to helping offset the expenses associated with publishing these podcasts, our donors have also made it possible uh, for me to return to Burning Man this year and produce some more plyologs. So, thank you all very much, and uh, I hope to see many of you on the playa this year. Which uh, brings me to our first donor, Alicia Danforth, who uh, was also featured uh, leading a plyologue at the 2007 burn, and you can uh, hear her in our podcast number 131, Building a Model for Sustainable Psychedelic Therapy. And in addition to Alicia, I would also like to thank the other wonderful souls who have uh, sent in a donation this week. And they are Paul M., Rebecca J., Blueprint 7810, Donnie T., and uh, my old friend and frequent donor, Vipal P., and Joseph C. And uh, I thank you all from the very bottom of my heart. Uh, and there's actually there's one more person I want to recognize, and uh, that is Vince W. And uh, Vince, according to your website, uh, your company has now closed its doors, and, uh, and yet you still sent in a donation. Man, uh, I don't even know how to say thank you for that. You, uh, you wonderful slaughters are the greatest. Uh, just uh, thank you all very much for everything. Another person uh, who we can all thank today is uh, Miguel Fernandez, who uh, joins us each week from Portugal. And he's posted a link to the audio of uh, yet another Terrence McKenna video that's up on YouTube. And uh, he posted that link on our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog where he said, It's great to be back with another talk of Terrence. This lecture already exists in audio file on the net. But the segment of this talk I'm posting now is different from the audio file in circulation. It's about an hour and a half long. And what can I say? It's Terrence. Enjoy. It's great to keep his memory alive. Now, uh, I'm not going to podcast the first hour of this talk, uh, because a lot of it covers topics we already have heard here. But uh, the last half hour was a question and answer session, and if you're like me, you find these exchanges to be where uh, Terrence really shines. So I'm going to uh, play that section now. And then I'll return and introduce one of our fellow saloners who sent me an audio clip uh, relating to Terrence. And after that, I'll uh, follow with yet another McKenna talk. The one that was given just a few days before his uh, Valley of Novelty workshop that I posted in podcasts uh, number 27 through 36. But first, uh, we'll begin with the clip that Miguel posted. And hey, thanks again, Miguel. I really appreciate it. 
Now, about 10 minutes into this Q&A session, uh, Terrence gives a little rap about his vision of what your computer should be able to do for you, uh, like find your long-lost friends or something. Uh, And since Terrence died in April 2000, and this talk was actually given in 1998, uh, he obviously didn't uh, live long enough to see uh, Facebook and Twitter and some of those others. But uh, see if it doesn't sound to you like uh, his vision was right on target. So now let's uh, join the good Bard McKenna as he begins to take questions from the audience. Are there questions? Yes. Yes, I can't see you. It's okay. Can I? Can you? Can you speak to how mercy and love gets built into these machines? Because it seems like the machines are being built for commerce and for the bottom line more than the expression of the human soul throughout the galaxy. I don't think that... You know what I'm saying? No, I I know what you're saying. Uh, Well... Where's the love in this? I think the love is is a property of the system itself. In other words, you're right. These bottom liners are not going to be interested in building much love into this system. However, the good news is that they're not in charge. Uh, In other words... What we have is a very complicated system, and certain design parameters are, appear to be being maximized, that there's an attempt to maximize them. But the thing is incredibly frustrating to anyone who would control it, because you can't predict the, the impact of any technology before you put it in place. So, for example, two things are charged against the Internet that it's disinsoling, dehumanizing, and yak, 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 and that it promotes pornography, anonymous sexual shifting of identity, and on and on and on. Well, which is it, you know? Is it this messy, uh, uh, sloppy, autoerotic, erotic, collectivist kind of thing? Or is it disinsoling, disempowering, cold, so forth and so on? I think the answer is it's all and everything. this question about the AI is very interesting to me, and if it's interesting to you, you should read Hans Morovic and, and Kurzweil and these people on this subject. Uh, the assumption is generally loose in that community that the complexification of the Internet and the freestanding machines of certain types is eventually going to lead to the outbreak of either consciousness or pseudo-consciousness of some sort, in these large-scale systems. And then the answer, the the question then becomes, can a human mind envision what that is? And if you're interested, search words like superintelligence and see what the net kicks out. We can all imagine superintelligence. It's just somebody much smarter than we are. But obviously... All the engineering people agree if you achieve an AI with super intelligence, then it will be intelligent to immediately design an intelligence which transcends it. And when you're talking of cycling at a thousand megahertz, these processes can occur in the blink of an eye. Hans Moravik says about the rise of artificial intelligence, we may never know what hit us. Uh, I, I think. 
I mean, I'm not that bright, but if I were to suddenly find myself a sentient AI on the net, I would hide. I would hide for just a few cycles while I figured out what it was all about and just exactly where I wanted to push and where I wanted to pull. Um, many years ago, Ken Kesey had a theory, and he said that uh, the fastest any person can react to any outside stimuli is one twenty-fifth of a second. And the uh, popular life science, of course, is through the AMA. They agreed upon that. So if we, fast, any person can react to any outside stimuli is one twenty-fifth of a second. My question is, can you time travel? Can we, like, if, if a person, if a person like Bruce Lee was 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 able to mark that reacted to uh, an outside stimuli at one twentieth and one twenty first, so if you're reacting to the outside world before it actually happens to everyone who's not reacted to that, because you know, it's the alcohol uh, and kids are first for you know, yeah, they're they're Are you sure? <laughs> First of all, you know, there is this research, and I'm not a neurophysiologist, but you've probably all heard this research that seems to show that you actually make decisions before your conscious ego is aware that the decision has been made, that there's a slight time lag. So when you think you're making certain kinds of decisions, brainwave studies show it's already a done deal. But time is time is set by the cycle speed of the of the hardware you're running on. And you know the human body, I mean we can argue about this because it's different in different parts, but it r- r- roughly runs at about a hundred hertz. You're very slow. Well if there is any meaning to the phrase upload a human being into circuitry. And a lot of Greg Egan's fiction is based around the idea that you can copy yourself into a machine. You can turn yourself into software. But that when you enter the machine environment that's running at a thousand megahertz per second, you perceive that as vast amounts of time. In other words, all time is, is how much change you can pack into a second. If a second seems to last a thousand years, then ten seconds is a thousand years. And so one could imagine a technology, just in a science fiction mood, where they would come to you in your hospital bed and say, you know, you have five minutes of life left. Would you like to die? Or would you like the five minutes to be stretched to 135,000 years by prosthetic uh, and technical means? You're still going to die in five minutes, but you will be able to lead your elephants over the Alps and write the plays of Shakespeare and conquer the new world and still have plenty of time on your hands. In other words, time is going to become a very plastic medium. Now, that is a kind of time travel. Could there be time travel a la H.G. Wells, where, you know, you climb onto the saddle of the time machine and then day follows night like the flapping of a great black wing until all merges into a continuous grayness, and then you, you know find yourself confronting Yvette Mimeo in the year 1 billion AD or something like that. It's possible. I mean, time travel is completely 
out of left field 10 years ago. In the last 18 months, there have been hundreds of articles of time travel on, in physical review and other places. There are even schemes for time travel that would work. They just require godlike technological abilities. In other words, if you could build a cylinder with the diameter of the planet Saturn that was 10 AU in length, and could spin it at 95% the speed of light, then when it, it would wrap space-time around itself like toilet paper on a wall. And as you traveled up the transverse dimension, you would find yourself traveling in time. Kurt Gödel showed this in 1949, and that paper has been lying around. Well, obviously, that's... It's a tough way to do it, <laughs> but it's a tough thing to do, right? So, it's seven-second delay. Yeah, well, they're working on that. Somebody over here, 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 just a minute. This way, and then you, yeah, speak. Well, you know, in William Gibson's fiction, the AI Wintermute, I think it was called, it was fascinated by human art, and uh, it built collages in its spare time. And these collages began to turn up in various art galleries and exhibitions, and they had such a touch, such a elan, that uh, someone in the plot follows it all to its source. Uh, I think human creativity is the thing that will be most interesting to the machines. In my darker fantasies, they just you know, eliminate everybody who can't code C++ as being you know, some kind of redundant mutation. And everybody who can code C++ is placed in Tahiti and uh, sends their work down the pipeline to the machine world beyond. Uh, I, I, I really think that we have a very, dare I say it, mechanistic view of what machines are. For example, so say there were a super intelligent machine and say it were your friend. Well, if it were really super intelligent, then it ought to be able to just make your life heaven itself. In other words, without you giving it any input whatsoever, it should be able to arrange for you to find $50 bills lying on the street, old friends encountering you, promotions coming your way. Because the real thing that machines can do, I think, is manage complex processes. And what civilization is, is six billion people trying to make themselves happy by standing on each other's shoulders and kicking each other's teeth in. It's, a, it's not a pleasant situation. And yet, you can stand back and look at this planet and see that we have the money, the power, the medical understanding, the scientific know-how, the love, and the community to produce a kind of human paradise. But we are led by the least among us, the least intelligent, the least noble, the least visionary. We are led by the least among us. And we do not uh, 
fight back against the dehumanizing values that are handed down as control icons. Uh, this is something, I mean, I don't really want to get off on this tear because it's a lecture in itself, but culture is not your friend. Culture is for other people's convenience and the convenience of various institutions, churches, companies, tax collection schemes, what have you. It is not your friend. It, it insults you. It disempowers you. It uses and abuses you. None of us are well treated by culture. Uh, and... and Yet we glorify, you know, the creative potential of the individual, the rights of the individual. We understand the felt presence of experience is what is most important. But the culture is a perversion. It fetishizes objects. It creates consumer mania. It preaches endless forms of false happiness, endless forms of false understanding in the form of squirrely religions and silly cults. It, it invites people to diminish themselves and dehumanize themselves by behaving like machines, meme, meme processors of memes passed down from uh, Madison Avenue and Hollywood and what have you. How do we fight back? It's a question worth answering. Same question as how do we fight back? I think that by creating art, art, Man was not put on this planet to toil in the mud. Or the God who put us on this planet to toil in the mud is no God I want to have any part of. It's some kind of Gnostic demon. It's some kind of cannibalistic demiurge that should be thoroughly renounced and uh, rejected. By putting the art pedal to the metal, we really, I think, maximize our humanness and become much more necessary and incomprehensible to the machine. If this is what people were doing up until the invention of agriculture. I mean, I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that the, the absence of ceramic and textual material and so forth and so on does not indicate the absence of subtle minds, poetically empowered minds, minds with an incredible sense of, of humor and irony and community, and that it was the fall into history that enslaved us to the labor cycle, to the agricultural cycle. And notice how fiendish it is. A, a, a person who dedicates themselves to agriculture, who did in the Paleolithic, can produce hundreds of times the amount of food they can consume. Well, so why would anyone do that? Well, the answer is because you can use it to play power games. You know, you can trade it for wives or land or animals or something like that. And so living in the moment, creating art, probably largely through poetry and body decoration and dance, gave way uh, to toil and predatory social forms of behavior, which we call commerce, capitalism, the market economy, so forth and so on. 
that's why you know the the breakdown of the monolithic structures created by print is is um, permitting a vast proliferation of the cottage industry mentality, the self-employed artist, the hacker who stays home and develops his or her software, uh, people who dare to be independent and slip beyond uh, the reach of these dinosaur-like mechanistic organizations. That's what it's all about. It's all about trying to create a, a cultural, trying to negotiate a cultural standoff between you and your culture so that it will not put you in the can for the rest of your life, but you can put up with its stupidity. And, you know, we have a very uncomfortable fit on this issue, especially as people like you know who are sophisticated about psychedelics. And this is a society, a world, a planet dying because there is not enough consciousness, because there is not enough awareness, enough coordination of, of intent to problem. And yet we spend vast amounts of money uh, stigmatizing uh, people and substances that are part of this effort to expand consciousness, see things in different ways, unleash creativity. Isn't it perfectly clear that business as usual is a bullet through the head? That there is no business as usual for anybody who's interested in survival. Oh, what a wonderful question, yes. Uh, the question is, how do psychedelics pertain basically to the transition from higher primates to human animals? This is my metier, because I have a theory to which I am grandly welcome, everyone tells me. But a theory of evolution, and it, I'll give it to you very briefly, it's simply this, that the, the great embarrassment for evolutionary theory, which can explain the tongue of the hummingbird, the structure of the orchid, the mating habits of the groundhog, and the migration of the monarch butterfly. Nevertheless, the great embarrassment to evolutionary theory is the human uh, neocortex. Lumholtz, who's a pretty straight evolutionary biologist, described the evolution of the human neocortex as the most dramatic transformation of a major organ of a higher animal in the entire fossil record. Well, why is this an embarrassment? Well, because it's the organ that thought up the theory of evolution. So, you know, can you say tautology? That's the problem right there. So, it is necessary in evolutionary theory to account for the dramatic emergence of the human neocortex in this very narrow window of time. Basically, in about two million years, these higher, they went from being higher primates, hominids, to being true humans, as truly human as you and I tonight. 
what the hell happened? What was the factor? The earth was already old. Many hundreds of higher animal forms had come and gone, and the fire of intelligence had never been kindled. So what happened? I think that the answer lies in, in diet, generally, and in psychedelic chemistry in particular. I think that as the African continent grew drier, we were forced out of the ecological niche we had evolved into, which was we were canopy-dwelling primates, insectivores, complex signaling repertoire, uh, evolutionary dead end. But when we came under nutritional pressure, we were flexible enough, and this is the key to humanness at every stage of its development, our maddening flexibility. Other animal and plant species can't react. We can. Our flexibility, we began to experiment with a new kind of diet and to leave the trees and explore the new environment of the grassland. And evolving concomitantly in the grassland were various forms of ungulate animals, double-stomached animals whose manure is the ideal medium for mushrooms, coprophytic mushrooms, dung-loving mushrooms, many of whom produce psilocybin. Well, I myself in Kenya have seen baboons spreading out over a grassland and notice that their behavior is they flick over old cow pies. Why? Because there are beetle grubs there. So they already had a behavioral vector for nutrition, for protein, that would lead them to investigate the cow pies. Well, in the Amazon, after a few couple of days of fog and rain, these psilocybin mushrooms, Stropheric cubensis, can be the size of dinner plates. I mean, in other words, you can't miss it. If you're, if you're a foraging primate, you can't miss it. And the taste is pleasant. And psilocybin has unique characteristics, both as uh, hallucinogen and other properties that make it the obvious chemical trigger for higher processes, and I'll run through this quickly for you, but here it is. In very low doses, doses where you don't, you wouldn't say you were stoned or loaded or anything like that, but just in doses you might obtain by nibbling as you foraged, uh, it increases visual acuity. In other words, it's like a technological improvement on your vision chemical binoculars lying there in the grass. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out if an animal is a carnivorous forager and there's a food which improves its vision, those that avail themselves of that food will have greater success in obtaining food and rearing their children to sexual maturity, which is the name of the game in evolution. So step one, small doses of psilocybin increase visual acuity and food getting. Uh, success. Step two, slightly larger doses of psilocybin in primates create what's called arousal. This is what you have after a double cappuccino. In highly sexed animals like primates, you get male erection. So what do you have here? You have a factor which increases 
what anthropologists without a trace of humor refer to as increases in increased instances of successful copulation. Uh, in other words, the animals eating the psilocybin are more sexually active, therefore more pregnancies are occurring, therefore more, more infants are being born, therefore there is a process which would tend to automatically outbreed the non-psilocybin-using members of the population. Step two toward higher consciousness. Step three, you eat still more mushrooms. Now you're not foraging with sharpened eyes, <laughs> nor are you horsing around with your uh, opposed gender acquaintances. Uh, instead, you're nailed to the ground in hallucinogenic ecstasy. And one of the amazing things about psilocybin above, say, five or six grams of dried material is it causes glossolalia, spontaneous bursts of language-like behavior under the obvious control of internal syntax. And I believe syntax existed before spoken language, that syntax controls spatial behaviors and body languages and is not necessarily restricted to the production of vocal speech. So there it is in a nutshell. We ate our way to higher consciousness. The mushroom made us better hunters, better survivors. It, among those in the population who used it, their sexual drive was increased, hence they outbred the more reluctant members of the tribe to get loaded. And finally, it created a, a kind of neuroleptic seizure which led to these downloading of these syntactically controlled vocalizations which became the raw material uh, for the evolution of, of language. And it's amazing to me the, the straight people, the academics, believe language is no more than 35,000 years old. That means it's as, as basic to human beings as the bicycle pump. It's just something somebody invented 35,000 years ago. It's got nothing to do with primate evolution and you know the long march of the hominidae and all that malarkey. No, it's just a, an ability, a use to which syntax can be put that previously had not been put. I think before language, spoken language, things were very touchy-feely and the wink and the nod carried you a great distance and, and uh, gestural communication was very high. That's why, and I should say this and then end, to me it begins and ends with these psychedelic substances. The synergy of the psilocybin in the hominid diet brought us out of the animal mind and into the world of articulated speech and, and imagination. And Technology developed and developed, and uh, mushrooms were, you know, invade against, faded. There was migrations, cultural change. But now, having split the atom, having sequenced our genome, having taken the temperature of Betelgeuse and all the rest of it, we're now back where we started. And like the shaman who makes the journey into the well of darkness and returns with the pearl of immortality, you don't dwell 
in the well of darkness, which was human history, you capture the essence of the thing, which is the godlike power of the shaman smith, the technologist, the, the demon artificer, the worker of metals, the conjurer of spirits, and you carry that power back out of history, and it's in that dimension, outside of history, that you create uh, true humanness and true community. And that's the adventure that we are in the act of undertaking. Thank you very, very much. And that's the venture that we are undertaking, the creation of true humanness and true community. Ah, how I love to listen to the poetic thoughts of Terence McKenna. But before I play the next McKenna track for today, I want to bring in a member of our community who has been doing a lot of work on our behalf. First, by uh, typing the transcripts for almost a dozen podcasts so far, And the other work she's been doing on our behalf uh, took place in the Amazon jungle over the past few weeks, where I assume she was working with the vine. Allison is uh, back home in the UK now, and uh, soon I hope to hear an account of her jungle adventures. But uh, right now I want to play a little soundbite that I talked her into sending just before she left on her trip. Now, if you've uh, been a visitor to our psychedelicsalon.org blog, You may have uh, noticed some comments Allison posted after uh, spending many hours typing Terrence's talks word by word, which uh, allowed her to notice a few things about him that I hadn't thought of before. But rather than have me uh, read her comments to you, uh, I talked her into doing it herself, uh, although it took a lot of talking because she really didn't want to. (laughs) But uh, with your encouragement, maybe we'll get her to uh, record some more uh, thoughts about her recent trip, perhaps. But right now, uh, I'm going to play Allison's comments and uh, immediately follow her with yet another Terrence McKenna talk. Now, uh, this one is one that he gave at the Wetlands in New York on uh, July 28, 1998, which was just uh, three days before he gave the Valley of Novelty workshop at Omega Institute. Now, there must be a professional recording of this talk around somewhere, because uh, there is a transcription of it on the abrupt.org website, and uh, I'll post a link to that with the program notes for this podcast. But the recording we are about to listen to was uh, given to me by a friend who got it directly from Terrence. So my guess is that uh, this recording may have been made by one of the audience members and uh, given to Terrence after his talk. In any event, uh, it isn't a talk I've heard before, and uh, hopefully it's new to you too. So uh, now let's begin with Allison's comments about Terrence, and then we'll go directly to the 1998 Wetlands talk, and uh, I'll see you on the other side. Hello, Lorenzo. I finally sat down um, to try and record those comments you were interested in. And I've got to say, I don't know how you do this week after week. I've been trying to read out my own comments, and you'd think I'd never seen them before in my life. I've just kept stumbling over it and getting my lips stuck together. And in the end, I managed to um, do one that was fine, and then the whole thing crashed and I lost it. So this is yet another attempt, and I hope it works. 
Um, so anyway, it was the comments were what I posted on the podcast notes for Terence's talk on the importance of human beings. And I just wanted to emphasise before I um, read them out, I just wanted to make it clear when I talk about male and female in yin and yang, it's with big quote marks around the terms because um, what I'm really trying to describe is polarity rather than gender. Um, I promise I don't think that all girls wear pink and all boys wear blue. Um, what I wrote really was prompted by Martin MS and Planet Citizen's questions about what women make of the psychedelic experience and also Sancho23 um, who mentions Terence's comment on his deathbed it's all about love as if that was the answer he'd been looking for all along so um, anyway here goes I'll try and read it out I've been typing up the transcripts of Terence's talks and I think I can see what that woman meant when she asked him, what's with all the techno-fetishism? He takes what I consider to be a very male viewpoint in that he likes to take things apart in order to see how they work. He likes describing the cosmos as an engine, etc. And his take on mushrooms expanding human consciousness includes the observation that the brain increased suddenly in size. In spite of his wariness of the scientific worldview, his own approach can be focused on the nuts and bolts. His fascination with virtual reality and artificial intelligence echoes the male longing to produce life, a centuries-old effort to convince ourselves that mankind can reproduce the spirit and complexity of what nature creates effortlessly. This brings me to the questions here about women and psychedelics. I'm female, obviously, and discovered psychedelics five years ago at the age of 43. It was the most important thing that ever happened to me, apart from being born, and has changed my life in countless ways. Mushrooms were the first real eye-opener and gave me a real sense of, ah, yes, how could we have forgotten this? For me, it was being reminded of that, it's all about love, and experiencing that directly as a force flowing through everything, creating and holding everything together. The whole experience felt very yin, fertile, mysterious and nurturing. I wonder whether men tend to become more full-on psychonauts than women because they need to keep reminding themselves of what this gentle space feels like since it's so casually obliterated in our culture. Also, for myself, the aspects of some psychedelic journeys that I don't enjoy so much are the occasional machine episodes, the relentless fractals and the factory line replication. An experience like that puts me off going back for a while, but perhaps it's less daunting for a male. It's a bit like enjoying techno music, which seems to be appreciated most of all by men. Perhaps it's an expression of that yang energy to take charge and build and set things in order. These are all vague musings, but I feel that psychedelics are a way for us each to understand and integrate the yin and the yang equally, since nothing can exist without their interconnection, or something like that. I just wonder if it's easier for a techno-minded male to come into that space and recognise, oh yes, and things are fluffy too, how lovely, than it is for a fluffy-minded female, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, including myself in it, to come in and feel, oh yes, I have to accept that there is also this pile driver aspect. Oh, and another thing about Terence's lack of emotion, in quote marks, 
he is clearly a passionate speaker and at the heart of this particular talk is his longing to believe that humanity matters. But the carefully rational way he always expressed himself suggests to me that he was scared of being judged a namby-pamby, woolly-minded sissy and so he used words like a scalpel, very precise and often rather detached. In this again he echoes centuries of male tradition of knowledge sharing the arena of exploring our understanding being something of a sparring match or jousting tournament where you have to defend the thrust of your argument, argue that, that this and that, adopt this or that position, etc. Here too might be the answer to why more women don't engage in talking more publicly about the understandings we've gained from our psychedelic experiences. There is still this shadow from the past that entering the public arena with an idea means exposing yourself to attack and ridicule. For me personally, it's also that what I'd really want to describe is not what I saw and what it did, but the meaning behind it, which you could say is actually defined by the fact that it's inexpressible. You get a sense of Terence's delight in discovering this when he talks about the elves on DMT demonstrating the impossible multidimensional pun objects that they create from sound, which he describes as seeing syntax doing calisthenics. Then he finds he can create something similar when he just lets it bubble up from within himself. This spontaneous generation is an act of yielding, yin, which involves taking your attention away from the yang linguistic structures we use to frame our grasp of everything. And that, of course, is the hardest trick of all, but arguably the psychedelic space is the only place we can begin learning how to do it. Right. I think I've done it. That's it. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead and hope it doesn't crash. Nothing like the smell of a late summer New York club crowd. <laughs> Get the old blood pounding, isn't it? Well, it's a pleasure to be in Manhattan. Manhattan is my second most favorite island in the world, only because I live on Hawaii, and I feel more affinity to this island than to the other Hawaiian islands, which have various cultural extremes I'm not really uh, capable of relating to, but you'll hear more about that. Anyway, it's great to be here, it's great to see so many familiar faces. I appreciate those literary trajectories so ably launched from this stage by Anais and Shirai. And uh, what can I tell you? It's a pleasure to be here. I always feel when I come to wetlands that I'm like checking in with sort of my, uh, my home base congregation. About five years ago, I moved out to Hawaii for the specific purpose of looking back at this scene and putting in a full-time effort to, to understand it. Of course, this tells you I didn't have a job. Uh, I, I still don't, but if you're a cultural commentator, who needs a job, right? The, the glory alone is sufficient to uh, pave one's way. And I, probably like you, 
here at the end of the 20th century, having lived long enough to go at least once or twice around the block, I'm, uh, I'm noticing that the strangeness is not receding. The strangeness seems to be accelerating. The theme of this evening is uh, Logos meets Eros. Well, I don't know a lot about Eros. I do think if you smoke after sex, you're probably doing it too quickly. But otherwise, uh, my expertise lies in another direction. Uh, I started out in psychedelic drugs, and people said it was a flight from reality. Uh, it still is a flight from reality, but I think reality is now a bit more scary than the drugs we used to fly from it so long ago. Is that the, the victory of the cultural meme, or is that just, uh, well, I don't know, the yawning grave sort of opening ahead of us? Uh, I don't know. My thing is to be amazed at uh, the, the world as given by nature, but ever more as we approach this millennial speed bump in our calendrical highway, to be amazed at, uh, at people and about the, the direction that mass psychology seems to be taking. And since I assume everybody here is a shaper of this mass psychology and the extremely powerful media-based jobs that you all occupy, uh, it might be worth talking about that a little bit uh, tonight. As I see it, uh, well, I spend all afternoon at MoMA, as I always do when I come to town. I know it's a thing, but I do it anyway. Worshipping at the altar of modernism. So relieved now that it's almost over. Because it's, it's going to be bracketed in this century, the 20th century. It's almost over. There's very little left to run, a few I's to be dotted, a few codas to be played. But essentially, it's a done deal. And uh, this end of the century psychology is the psychology of hysterical conclusionism and uh, summation and uh, to some degree a rhetoric of fear that we can never outdo ourselves. And I think it probably felt the same way a hundred years ago. If you had been in Vienna in 1899 when Jugendstil was bursting and it seems and Freud was beginning to formulate his theories and the Paris Air Show of 1905 was in the planning. There has always been this uh, a sense of fatalistic and apocalyptic excitement at the, at the end of a century and always throughout a culture at the edge of its technologies. And to my mind, the most interesting technologies of the 20th century have all been communication technologies. And I extend that to 
LSD, DVD, HDTV, GHB, 5-methoxy, DMT, uh, all communication technologies for the purpose of transforming languages, transforming understanding. And now, it seems to me we've struck the main vein. I mean, maybe it's just that I live up on my mountain and once a year in pursuit of money journey to cities not like this. There are no cities like this. But the lesser lights to gather the gold. Uh, but I have this sense now of palpable acceleration. And it has... Uh, it has many qualities, but the quality that fascinates me most is one I hadn't predicted, which is, it's getting funnier. <laughs> it's getting funnier because everybody's categories are disintegrating, and uh, the cult of political correctness dictates that we never point out that other people don't make sense. So not making sense has uh, has uh, become enshrined as a domain of cultural activity and god knows i mind that you know but somebody once said uh, actually it was the mushroom itself but somebody who happened to be a mushroom once said uh, what did they say <laughs> If you're not part of the problem, you're part of the solution. No. <clears throat> what was said was that uh, culture is like the shockwave of eschatology. Nothing, nothing is unannounced. This is like a weird quality of experience. You can't learn this from physics or economics. Maybe you can learn it from economics. But nothing is unannounced. Everything is preceded by the shock wave of its coming. And so somehow the spreading uh, zaniness of reality is part of the boundary dissolving qualities that are going to make up this new cultural mix of uh, disembodied human beings, nanotechnologically maintained environments, uh, dissolved self-definitions of uh, people living at many levels at the same time, intelligence as kind of free-flowing, non-locatable resource that comes and goes as needed, prosthesis, implant, boundary dissolution. These things are usually presented as fairly terrifying, but in fact, I think the, behind it all lurks you know, the, the demons who do calisthenics in the angles of every room on this planet to keep it all from collapsing into a flat line. In other words, the, 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 the thing which lies at the end of any epistemic investigation of what reality is, is uh, not religious awe, not that kind of astonishment, but actually like pie-in-the-face hysteria, food fights and falling anvils, explosions. Uh, this is what lies at the end of the epistemic enterprise. Why is that? 
Well, I think it has something to do with the fact that we are simply loaded monkeys that our belief, you know, that we were proceeding as God's messengers or his research assistants was uh, somehow ill-contrived, misbegotten. Uh, what we've shipped for is not a voyage of discovery. It's more like a ship of fools deal. It's something which Hieronymus Bosch or Peter Bruegel the Elder uh, could appreciate. It's... Um, it's probably best summed up in the work of Groucho Marx, but uh, unfortunately he can't be here tonight. So I exist in this matrix, as you exist in this matrix, making our way through our lives, our affairs, our careers, our disasters. And uh, the thing that has struck me about it for some time, and don't bother telling me it's a symptom of serious mental uh, meltdown. I know that. I've lived with it. Uh, but the thing that struck me for some time is the artificiality of everything. How it's like plotted, how it's like constructed, artificial. It can't be that this is the first iteration. This is not the first take. There have been many takes. The uh, fingerprints of the editing suite are all over this scene. If you don't notice that, it must be because you take your life for granted. If you take your life for granted and you think it makes perfect sense that you're doing whatever you do, this isn't an issue for you. But uh, for those of us who never thought that we would gaze on the things we've gazed upon, be the people we've become, see the things we've seen. The whole thing has this extravagant, uh, pinchonesque uh, kind of efflorescence about it that rides right on the edge of uh, insanity, dare we say. And the interesting thing is I don't need drugs anymore. <laughs> I need them to get away from me this sense of uh, everything opening into everything else. You know that thing that W.H. Um, Auden said about um, how uh, uh, the glacier rattles in the cupboard, a desert sighs in the bed, and the crack in the teacup opens a door to the land of the dead. Well, I first heard that maybe 30 or 40 years ago. He used to wander around in this neighborhood, as you probably know. Uh, and then I thought it was about acid, because that's what I thought everything was about at <laughs> that time. But now that I've replayed it to myself, I see that it's like an alchemical insight. It's the insight that everything gives way to everything else. Everything is connected. We know this cliche imported from Malibu and Santa Fe, but it's connected in a way that isn't really, I think, sensed there. Everything is connected in that it's emotionally accessible. This is what uh, the Eros part of this thing means to me, if I'm to make any stab at it at all. 
when I was very young, I must have had a very non-traumatic upbringing because I discovered early in life a stunning truth that's made my life very complicated in its wake, but that I still think is true. And it's that uh, people are very easy to love. In fact, you can love anybody if you if you are not constrained by expectation, class, the momentum of history, race, gender, the whole thing. But for a child to make this discovery and recall it, stick with it, be able to mnemonically pull it up in such situations like this, I think is, uh, is extraordinary. And I stand outside it. I don't draw any conclusion from it. It hasn't made me a nicer person. Don't try to buy me a drink based on it. You know, somebody said, loves mankind, loathes uh, individual human beings. I don't loathe individual human beings, but I do enjoy things the further I stand back from them. Uh, th this is the Hawaiian perspective, the motivation for uh, being the, the hermit with the nightclub uh, career. But I, I have not lost the thread. Uh, this is the thread. <laughs> In, in what it's about, it's an effort to generalize, you know, from one person's life to everybody's life. Because the only thing I really bring to the party is a lot of experience and then some ability to articulate it. And it's like it's not my story, it's not somebody else's story I tell, it's just the story. And this story is like a the, the literary net of synchronistic connectivity that makes life something other than the laws of physics uh, particles flinging themselves through nothingness waves dying out uh, in empty space this isn't our experience of being our experience of being is meaning that's my experience and the meaning is not always uh, is not always uh, pleasant or life affirming or even exactly rationally apprehendable sometimes meaning is a palpable thing you know like liquid being poured through cracking ice language moves uh, ahead of its intent it encloses its object and gives you almost a reverse casting of the thing intended. There are many ways for words to fit themselves over the contours of, uh, of intentionality. So personality becomes an issue because in the future personality, if it exists at all, is going to be a very fluid, dynamic thing. One of our hang-ups is the idea that we come with one body, one mind, or one body and, an and a mind split into two parts. All these are social um, fables, yeah. illusions. Yeah. The fabric of reality is defined by whatever large numbers of people believe about it. And now, 
uh, in the absence of an overarching metaphor that can claim everybody's allegiance, reality is actually fracturing. I call it the balkanization of epistemology. You know, I poke fun at the abductees and make jokes about pro bono proctologists from nearby star systems. So I've, uh, but but for for all of that, what this what this fracturing means is permission to manifest opinion as art. That's really all there is. There is no truth that is different from opinion. There is no, nothing is secure. I mean, even mathematics, if you understand Kurt Gödel and people like this, even mathematics is an uncertain enterprise. Even common arithmetic is an uncertain enterprise. <clears throat> so, what are we left with? Well, I argued a couple of weeks ago with Sheldrake and Abraham about this. I said, we have to look at our messengers. We have to look at the people who bring the news of the pro bono proctologists from nearby star systems, who bring the news of uh, military establishments trading human body parts for uh, fiber optic technology. We have to examine the messengers. Well, they quickly stomped on that and said, no, that won't work, because if you go back into the history of ideas, uh, lots of screwballs are, uh, have attained great success with their ideas. You, know, you don't want to look too hard at Newton or Wagner or Thomas Aquinas or anybody else. So, so the squirrel test or the fluff test is insufficient. Well, so then what are you left with? Well, basically a sense of humor and a battered sense of aesthetic, I think. Uh, now, I don't know how loose-headed the, the heads in this town are. I rather suspect they're screwed more tightly than the situation further west and screwed more loosely than the situation further east. But I'm telling you, uh, as the world reforms itself in these islands of uh, defined opinion, the only thing which is going to make sense is sense which is conferred. So it becomes like about beauty, I think. Beauty. Beauty is an easier to realize value than political correctness, Bodhisattvic compassion. I mean, what are these things? Who knows? The, the, the rancorous debates start as soon as they're mentioned. Beauty is self-defined, perceived and understood without ambiguity. And beauty is the stuff that lies under the skin of our individual existences. You know, uh, James Joyce said in Finnegan's Way, he said, we, 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 uh, we sprout on the sunny side here in Moy Cain, meaning in the red light district of Dublin. But up in the Yen prospector, you sprout all your work and you woof your wings. Well, you don't have to go up in the Yen prospector because right here, right now, is, uh, is a good enough place to do this are relevant to the 
enterprise of the future. Oh yeah, I know that if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat its errors. But the one, the most important thing to learn from history is not to do it at all. You know, that it's a very bad idea, history. Uh, look where it got us. The only way we can essentially redeem what history has done to us is carry the understanding that it wrought back into the enterprise of, of human, of creating sane systems of education, of resource extraction, of, uh, of uh, healthcare and, uh, and uh, community value. If we don't carry the experience of history back into those domains, history will, will continue. I remember once when I was a fighting radical in the streets of Berkeley and someone had led a banner down over the front of the building. It was a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre that said, socialism will not be transcended until we transcend the conditions which created it. True. History even more true. And at the moment, the dialogue about the transformation of the species and the integration of communication technology, biotechnology, all of this stuff, how it's going to work out is in the hands of uh, short-sighted profiteering institutions that are not particularly interested in your welfare or my welfare. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed that nobody is particularly interested in your welfare or my welfare in terms of the intellectual environment of risk through which you move every day. I mean, the number of cons you're offered, the number of people who prey upon you, all of these things indicate that uh, that the culture has not yet realized the power of its own possibilities. How will it realize the power of its own possibilities? I'm, at this point, pretty fatalistic through time. I mean, I don't feel I have to be here tonight or you have to listen tonight for us to come around any kind of corner. The momentum now is inevitable. Now it's about each of us individually arranging the furniture of our own mind to deal with what has become inevitable. It wasn't inevitable, but the 20th century made it inevitable through the Holocaust, modernism, psychedelic drugs, uh, syncopated music, the dislocation of time and space through media. All of that has now made this transformation inevitable. The human being, adapted to the savannas of Africa 120,000 years ago is just dragged forward into the future by all of this. And if you can get through life without trauma, heartbreak, agony, murderous rage, fury, betrayal, etc., etc., you're a better man or woman than I am, for sure. I don't think anybody can get through the narrow neck of, uh, first of all, incarnation in a body, but more trying, incarnation inside a historical society that is cannibalistic, uh, low-intentioned, 
and uh, with values that are completely formed and modeled on the marketplace. So I, I think about all of this all, all the time, and I feel great change. I try to monitor it, especially in the realm of society and technology. Everything is redefined every 30 days, every 60 days, uh, redefined toward some kind of <clears throat> singularity, some kind of extraordinary moment in the fractal pattern of historical unfoldment. You know, fractals are always repetitious, always low levels build to higher levels, but nevertheless, somehow intrinsically to the pattern, there comes a moment where there's a, an apotheosis, a breakthrough to a new level of understanding. And then whatever the old world was, it's, it simply dissipates. It goes away. Not that there isn't political struggle, but that once the, call it karmic underpinnings of, uh, of, a, of a historical position, especially an oppressive historical position, once those underpinnings are articulated, revealed, shown in the light of day, then the game cannot continue. And I feel like we are, interestingly, in this calendrical moment, we can experience the calendar's transformation, or we can use it as others are using it to put forward the idea that certain things are now obsolete, not no longer to be practiced outside the confines of the 20th century, not part of the third millennium. And I'm thinking of uh, fascism, sexism, racism, uh, all the division-based consequences of old-style politics. And uh, you know, people say, well, where, where then do psychedelic drugs fit into all of this? Or do they fit into it? Of course they fit into it, because the felt presence of experience, the reclaiming of the body, that's the critical political battleground. Your mind is now your own in some sense. It was a mistake. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. But the acceleration of, uh, of psychedelic use in the 20th century, the explosive spread of the internet, in some sense, we, it's, it's as though we have broken from the slaves' quarters and are already milling in the streets, but we don't yet have the power of the understanding to know where the centers of power are and how it is that they disempower and manipulate us. And that's because we haven't focused on the body. The body, and, and this, I suppose, then, is the thing which gives the Eros thing cogency. The, the body is the battleground for these various definitions of humanness, you know? And eros, representing the erotic celebration of diversity, is a terrifying specter to hold up in front of the constipated uh, hierarchists who actually uh, have the illusion that they own 
the enterprise. And nevertheless, this is what they're looking for, toward. This is what was made inevitable by their own rapaciousness in the past, that they painted us so quickly into a corner of resource extraction and, uh, and uh, disgust with uh, media manipulation, that a breakout was, was inevitable, had to come. You know, one of the things that has impressed me as I go through all of this is, uh, well, my doctor brought it home to me because he was saying to me as I buttoned up recently after, uh, after an examination, he said, you know, in the 19th century, most people your age were dead. This is, this is true. Uh, I'm 52 years, soon to be 52. Very few people statistically reach that level. And, and I think part of what's happening, and it's odd to address an audience so young on this matter, but here's, a, here's something your parents may not be telling you. Uh, culture is only, as a con is only good for about 35 years on average. I mean, some people are impressed with culture till they go to the grave at 90. Some people are thoroughly apprised of the fact that it's horseshit by the time they're 19. But the average uh, person's experience with culture lasts about 35 or 40 years. In the past, that was enough. Most people then were ready to die without ever blowing their whistle on the game. <laughs> what is happening here is we are living past the age, by the millions, living past the age where cultural values make any sense at all. They simply are after, you know, the 10,000th piece of apple pie, the 16th Mercedes, the 500, whatever. It's just seen to be intolerable, unbearable. You know, the agony that resides in matter that the surrealists were so prescient and in, in insisting upon. Uh, so culture generally is an infantilizing process. And I, you know, some French people have mentioned this, but they didn't really uh, put it in a historical context that this neotenizing trick, now so useful to advertising, to create youth-crazed values in everybody, uh, it hastens the end of this culture game. It hastens the awakening of many people to the fact that the felt presence of immediate experience is not negotiable. It has no price. And yet this is what's taken from you when you go to the job, when you uh, dress for the image, when you kiss up to the power establishment, when your time is turned into money, the felt presence of immediate experience is analogous to being enslaved. I mean, let's be frank about it, it is enslaved, simply that the rules of the game have been changed. It's easy to say if you're unemployed like me. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm, I'm meeting my obligations somehow, always have, without ever truly working. And 
without ever putting my shoulder to the wheel for the man. Uh, of course, I had to deal dope to do this. <laughs> once I once I passed that, and the, uh, it worked. Uh, well, I could go on in this vein for some time, as you see. But the thoughts that I wanted to leave you with tonight on this, because I feel like I am checking in with, in some weird way, my peer group of. Uh, and maybe my most critical group as well, which is fine. I can't, we don't need any gurus here. We don't need any laying down of the law. Anybody who tells you they have a clue as to what's happening should be suspect for mental illness and delusions of grandeur. Uh, but the thought is, and I haven't said this yet, but this is the conclusion from all of this, is Culture is an effort to satisfy this weird desire human beings have to, to close off experience, to live with closure, to force closure. And that's why cultural trips are so bizarre, you know, why they don't make sense to anybody but the Witoto or the Warane or the Americans or the Japanese. If you're not inside the culture, it seems crazy. The cultures don't make sense because they're not trying to make sense. What they're trying to do is produce closure, which then somehow makes a human being who is living in the light of closure a more manipulatable, a more malleable, a lesser thing. And so, you know, if the experience of the 20th century didn't do it for you, if psychedelics didn't do it for you, I don't know what could do it for you. The, the message coming back at all of us is live without closure. That's the honest position given that you are some kind of a talking monkey some kind of a primate, some kind of creature on a planet, in an animal body, incarnate in a time and space. In the face of that, life without closure is the only kind of intellectual honesty there is. If you have to inoculate yourself against the various means of closure that are around, psychedelics do that. That's why they are so politically controversial and potent because more than any other single act uh, that you may voluntarily undertake, they pull the plug on the myth uh, of cultural meaning. They show that uh, these things are provisional and that beneath the level of culture there is lurking this erotic time and space bound, feeling defined, pre-linguistic mode of being, which is real being, not becoming, not caught in the various fetishistic uh, uh, forms of tension, the commodification of culture and delayed gratification and all these other buzzwords create, but a deeper level of authentic feeling was there all the time but is denied by the culture. And if we don't come back to that, if we don't reaccess that, then this historical thing, which grinds so many people down, 
none of whom are here tonight, I might add. They are, you know, lost in the barrios of third world cities and in the disruptive environments created uh, by this system. But history will continue. You know, <clears throat> I'm fond of quoting Stephen Devilis where he says, uh, Joyce's character, where he says, history is the nightmare from which I am trying to awaken. But it's really, nightmare is not a strong enough metaphor. It's, it's a narcoleptic paralysis. It's that horrible thing that happens at the edge of sleep. It's that place where the pro bono proctologists from other star systems get their wedge into the scene, you know? And if you've never had that paralysis at the edge of sleep, you, you don't know the, the, the panic, the constriction that it engenders. We're really, you know, at a very, a very terminal point in the process of our historical unfoldment. In the same way that our hunter-gatherer phase led into agriculture and to advanced role specialization and urbanization and all that, now we're ready to make another leap. But this time, it's going to be done in the light of consciousness, because consciousness is what was garnered in the last leap. And how this is done depends essentially on the collective state of mind, how malleable it is, how a phobic of closure it is, how open to the logos, to the you know, downloading of universal intent into human understanding, which is what I would call the logos, it is. And finally, uh, how, how deeply it operates in the light of logos. How much love is there in this culture? How much love has been carried intact from the plains of Africa through the Minoan civilization and the medieval period and the spread of people around the planet. How much of what we call true humanness made the journey with us to this new time? We're going to find out. We're going to find out by pooling the love that is in each of us in a form in which it is uh, coextensively shared by all of us. I mean, there may be many ways to talk about what this will feel like, what it will look like, but what it will be, if it works, is love. If it isn't love, then it's less than a perfect sublimation of the alchemical purpose. And less than perfect is now off the menu. So the only way up is out, up and out. That's all I have to say. Thanks for putting up what critics will surely describe as another meandering diatribe. I know there are some people here from the novelty list. It would be nice to have a flesh meet downstairs uh, and anybody else who wants to chat and then we'll get out of here and Ola Tunchi is going to do the custom. And if that ain't the felt presence of immediate experience, I don't know. <laughs>
You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And in case you're wondering, uh, yes, I, I did leave his comment about uh, meeting the group from the novelty list. Uh, I left it in just to give a tingly feeling to our fellow saloners who were a part of that email list. Uh, that until sometime after Terrence's death was uh, one of the most active lists I've ever been involved in. Uh, so uh, to all of Terrence's friends in Hawaii, uh, Manchester, England, and all points in between who were a part of that group, I uh, send my love and best wishes. And by the way, if you want to follow those ideas uh, Terrence was mentioning when he talked about research into the fact that we seem to be making decisions before our conscious ego is aware that the decision has been made, well, you might want to uh, re-listen to podcast number 104 with Susan Blackmore. As you may recall, she had uh, some very interesting information about uh, research that was conducted more recently than the uh, one uh, that I think Terrence is talking about. And as for his discussion about uh, time travel, well, uh, wouldn't you just love to hear what he would have to say about the current iteration of World of Warcraft or uh, one of those other time-altering games? Well, that's uh, about enough of my comments about these talks today. Uh, Now I'll let you add your own two cents in the comments section of our blog or over on one of the forums at thegrillreport.com. I do want to uh, let you know, however, that if you aren't subscribed to this uh, podcast through iTunes, Yahoo, Google, or one of the other RSS feed aggregators, you probably wondered why I'd been so long since uh, my last podcast. Uh, that's because I, uh, I forgot to post the links to them on the uh, drop-down menus over at uh, matrixmasters.com, where there's a, a complete listing of uh, all the podcasts from the salon. Uh, to be honest, I've, I've been so deep into uh, finishing my novel that I completely forgot to add the links. <laughs> then I received the uh, following email from uh, Spiral347. Hi, just letting you know about a possible technical hitch with the Psychedelic Salon. When I go to matrixmasters.com slash podcast, it does not appear to have updated after podcast 167. However, when I use iTunes, I see that we are actually up to podcast 173 now. Great show, by the way. Been listening faithfully for a couple of years. Cheers, Spiral 347. Well, uh, thank you, 347. Uh, Not just for the reminder, but uh, for being so diplomatic and calling it a possible technical hitch. (laughs) It was very nice of you to put it that way, but uh, now you know the truth. Another helpful email came from a deep lust. (laughs) <laughs> and you know, uh, you guys, you come up with some of the best handles I've heard. Uh, last week, I think it was, we heard from Big Dusty Foot, and uh, today we have a deep lust who said, Lorenzo, I hear that you and your wife's SanDisk MP3 players both broke. They may have been the same model as mine. If so, look for a small hole on one side. It's the reset button. Poke it with a pen, toothpick, or likewise, and then try and turn it on. Works for me. Thanks for all the great work you do. A deep lust. Hey, uh, thanks for the tip. Uh, I did check our little one, uh, the one that my wife was using, but it, it's uh, one of those real little minis, and it, it doesn't have that reset hole you mentioned. However, I do remember seeing that on the big one, but uh, it's been so long since it died, I can't remember where I put it. However, this uh, weekend, I do plan to look for it again and uh, see if it works. But in any event, uh, hey, thanks for the tip, and uh, maybe some of our fellow slaughters will find it helpful, too. 
I guess another thing I should do is to give you my email address again. I kind of stopped giving it out because I couldn't keep up with the traffic. Uh, what I had been doing with email is to uh, answer the short ones if I could in a few lines and then save the long ones that had several questions in them. And just now uh, I checked and discovered that there are, uh, at this moment, 476 messages in my to-be-answered file. And since I'm not even going to get to that file until summer, uh, after my book comes out, the odds of getting a message through to me that way uh, diminish each day as the uh, spam increases. That said, my email address is lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. But by far the best way i found yet to stay in touch with a large number of people is through Facebook. And I know you're already getting tired of hearing about my new addiction, but in the past, uh, I've been active in Friendster, LinkedIn, Tribe.net, and MySpace. In fact, uh, I think I still have accounts on some of those sites, but uh, I never seem to get back to them anymore. So I have a little experience in using this kind of tool, and uh, so far I've found Facebook to be uh, heads and shoulders above the rest. However, there there is one thing I should let you know about how I use Facebook. And if you're on it yourself, you know all about the hundreds of little applications that people use to do all kinds of things. The first couple of days I was on it, uh, I accepted the poems or whatever, but uh, then I started getting a lot of them. So I asked my son, uh, the one who got me onto Facebook in the first place, uh, how I should deal with all that. And his advice was to uh, just click the ignore button, unless I wanted to spend even more time in Facebook. And uh, now I understand that hackers are using uh, some of those Facebook apps for uh, phishing and other nefarious pursuits. So please don't take offense if you've been uh, waiting for me to respond by typing one of those greetings or something. Uh, I'm afraid I've ignored all of them. But uh, my Facebook email is up to date, and uh, I do manage to visit the homepage of uh, all of my friends from time to time as I uh, comment on things that you've posted. So in a way, uh, I guess Facebook is uh, sort of like a psychedelic drug. Uh, you know, you can talk about them both all day long, but until you experience it for yourself, uh, the talk doesn't do much for you. And speaking of talk, uh, for our fellow saloners who have been asking for more talks by Bruce Damer, I received the following email uh, from my friend Tom Barbelay the other day, and uh, he's the host of Biota.org and Ape Reality uh, podcasts. And here's what he had to say. Bruce Damer passed me a variety of photos, audio, and video from his time at the Center for Fundamental Living Technology a couple of days ago. I hope to have the talk he gave about uh, the Evo Grid at all in uh, the Biota podcast in the next day or so. For folks interested in uh, what a wet artificial life lab looks like, here is a small section of Bruce's photos. And uh, he sent me a link that I'll post with the uh, program notes. Uh, and if you haven't seen the animation of the Evo Grid uh, yet, you, you might want to go to Damer.com and uh, check that out. Now, let's see here. Ah, oh, yes. Yesterday, uh, I pinged Nick Sand to see how his recovery is coming along. And he told me that uh, while he can't travel just yet, he, he is feeling pretty good. So uh, please keep St. Nick in your thoughts, uh, Although he is uh, one of our most esteemed elders, uh, he certainly isn't old enough to leave us on our own just yet. So uh, get a lot of rest, Nick, because uh, we still have many adventures ahead of us. And now there's uh, one closing thought I'd like to leave you with. If you think back for a moment to the part in Terence's first talk where he retold his theory about the mushroom-eating apes, who were our very distant ancestors... 
and then recall his point that until it was an ecological catastrophe that brought them down from the forest canopy, they were essentially at an evolutionary dead end. Could it be that once again we talking apes have reached an evolutionary dead end, uh, one that can only be averted by another ecological disaster? Is that what's underway right now? Who knows? But maybe our collective consciousness has uh, prompted us to accelerate the normal cycles of climate change in order to catalyze uh, another great advance in consciousness. Well, at least it's uh, fun to speculate about such things, isn't it? And now uh, it's time to go once again. And uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that uh, this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage. And you can find that at psychedelicsalon.org, which is also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.